If you would stand with me for the reading of the word. We're going to be reading from Matthew chapter 22, starting at verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Now we're moving to chapter 23, verses 1. Then Jesus spoke to the multitude and said to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not according to their works, for they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the men's shoulders. But they themselves will not even move them with one of their fingers. But all their words they do to be seen of men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the border of their garments. They love the best places at the feast, the best seats in the synagogue, greetings in the marketplace, and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you shut the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you devour the widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say whatever swears, whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple, that sacrifices the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that sacrifices the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and all things that are on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by whom him who dwells in it. And he swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay the tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and yet have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy 
and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone, blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Let's open our Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, we'll start out there again as we're basing our current series, God's Law and the Christian, on what we find here about the law in verse 15 and trying to understand what is the place of God's law in the Christian life. In recent years, I've become seriously concerned about how many Christians are losing sight of our Lord Jesus and of what He wants for His church. Many pastors and bloggers and podcasters, I think, have lost their way. And so we're going through Ephesians to recapture Jesus' mission for His church, to better understand what is it that Jesus wants from His church. So what is the mission of the church? Is it to reform society? Is it to set up godly government? And to that I ask, Does it say nothing about transformed character? Because that's one of the things I think is a a weakness in a lot who are speaking today in various forms. In his Ephesians commentary, John Stott calls the church God's new society. And that was actually the original title of that commentary. Uh, And so he calls it God's new society. The church is a renewed human community. And yet, he laments that the realities of lovelessness and sin in so many contemporary churches are enough to make one weep, for they dishonor Christ, contradict the nature of the church, and deprive the Christian witness of integrity. And that's what my concern has been, seeing that very thing playing out in so many churches today. In this series, we've been examining this truth. Obeying the law of Christ out of love for Christ is a necessary pursuit for the believer who's under the new covenant. It's something that's absolutely essential for us as believers under the new covenant. It's so sad to see people steer into one of the ditches that I have used at illustration. I'll come back to that in, in a bit. Those ditches represent errors regarding God's law, uh, antinomians neglect obedience, legalists neglect love, and others who are not going into one of those, plunging into one of those ditches, they, they might be veering one way or the other. So let's get again in our minds... Part of what Jesus is saying the church is about, or at least here, what it should look like. What is the goal that he has for us as a church and and the the broader church of Jesus Christ? So Ephesians chapter 2, I want to read verses 13 to the end of the chapter. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off, Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one, Jews and Gentiles. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he, Jesus, might make the two into one new man, 
thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God. In the spirit, that is where we're we're supposed to be headed. That is what he wants from his church. Now, he's going to develop this even more and spell it out as as we move through the rest of the book of Ephesians. And he's going to tell us specifically what we must do. But here is a picture of of what it ought to be like. And so with that in mind, want to address some of these concerns. Now, antinomianism or lawlessness is, in my illustration, that, that left-hand ditch that some people have plunged into. And we'll address that next week when I take us through a high-level exposition of Romans 6. Because, And I'd like you to read that this week sometime, Romans 6, but read the last few verses of chapter 5 as well, because that actually tells you what why he wrote Romans 6, for the whole reason of this antinomian or lawless kind of thinking. But legalism is the right-hand ditch. What is legalism? Well, it's simply this. This is my definition. Legalism replaces grace with law. That's what it is at its at its fundamental uh, basis. Legalism replaces grace with law, where God has appointed grace to be the cause of change. And so, even though we're going through some of these things, and and you you may be saying, okay, well, I, I don't care about that. But that's okay. It's good for us to learn this because it helps us to better understand the nature of the gospel, sanctification, uh, the role that God's law should have in our life in good works and that sort of thing. So legalism replaces grace with law in places where God has appointed that grace is to be what will cause change. Okay? And, and you'll see that here. <clears throat> the first change that must happen with a sinner is salvation. And we know one of the great calls of the gospel of the of the reformation that salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. Okay? So that that word alone is important. Okay? If you add works into that salvation, into that gospel, that you have to do these things, X, Y, and Z, in order to be saved, then you would be a legalist. Another change that needs to happen is when sinners have been justified in salvation, they are not at that point, even though they are positionally holy in Christ, Practically speaking, and, and we can all attest to this, who are saved, that we're not as holy as we ought to be. 
And, and so we have to change, and that is built into salvation. And it is because of the regeneration that happens in us, this is going to then result in change, or what we call the process of sanctification. We saw last time that that sanctification, again, is by grace and by the Holy Spirit or through the work of the Holy Spirit. If we teach that people are sanctified by works, that, too, is legalism. Puritan Richard Sibbs encourages us to notice the difference in the Old and New Covenants, or between the Old and New Covenants. And he says, between Moses, the Old Covenant, and Christ, the New Covenant. Moses, without any mercy, breaks all bruised reeds and quenches all smoking flax. And he takes that verse, talks about bruised reeds and smoking flax. That represents people who are weak. Uh, they're Christians, but they're weak. And, and, he's, and maybe they're doubting and weak in faith. And, and he's saying that, what the law will do is it comes to them without mercy. For the law requires personal, perpetual, perfect obedience from the heart. And that under a most terrible curse. But it gives no strength. In other words, it, it tells you that you are a sinner, but it can't fix the problem. It is a severe taskmaster like Pharaoh's requiring the whole tale of bricks and yet giving no straw. And you can think about uh, under before Moses brought the people out, that's what had happened when he first tried to bring the people out of Egypt. Christ, though, comes with blessing after blessing, even upon those whom Moses had cursed, and with healing balm for those whose wounds which Moses had made. And so, now... Those, the law of Moses was not bad in that, and he's not saying that. That was a good and gracious purpose for the law of Moses, to say, you are a sinner, and here is how you know you're a sinner. Here's God's law, and if you've broken it, then you must die. And those are the wounds that are inflicted on the sinner. But the law is doing that, and why it is gracious for the law to do that is because then the law also says... You're not going to find any help here. You need to flee to Christ. Fly to Christ. Only in Him will you find forgiveness in life. And so that's what he's talking about here. So the Old Covenant points us to the New to find our hope in Christ. Now, I want to talk today about concerns among a movement called Christian Reconstructionism or Theonomy. And this is a modern theological movement that some of you have shown an interest in, and that's fine. But, and, and there's going to be two groups that we need to address, okay? One is, and we need to guard against a few teachers among this movement who cross the line into legalism. Now, most of them are not, at least for, from what I can tell, most of them are not legalists by what we've already defined, okay? So that's good. But your elders are concerned about the harmful impact it could have on you if you embrace that. And we're going to talk about what that means because, 
and I'm going to show you from the Scriptures why we don't believe that this is what the Scriptures teach. And if that is true, and it doesn't come to pass, it could leave you disillusioned. It has done that before, and we're concerned for you, okay? And that's why we're talking about this. This is not going to be an expose. I'm not going to go through, I'm only going to mention a few of the leaders. I'm going to go through a lot of the detail. We could do that, and there could come a time where we need to do that. But the goal here is to help all of us to to have the discernment that we can look at something and we can say, okay, does that really line up with Scripture or not? Because there's a lot of teaching out there about the law as it applies to the Christian that ends up sometimes in this ditch or that ditch. And I've talked about a little bit of antinomianism. We're going to get into that more next time. Lawlessness. But also the the ditch of legalism that we are talking about now. But that's only part of this. There's also a potential for divisiveness. This is happening at times in, in, in the church at large. There is divisiveness. And we need to be careful about that. We... Uh, I, on behalf of the elders, uh, am not saying that you're not allowed to believe in this. Okay, we're not saying that at all. Okay, there are godly people who hold this, and they believe that that's what the Scriptures teach, and that's fine. But, we want to warn first against some, and I emphasize some, who are indeed legalists, and also for those who are not, to think more deeply about a number of passages in Scripture that you need to you need to weigh those. You need to consider that a little more carefully. Okay. So, what is Reconstructionism? Well, here's a. a, a a definition, if you will, by Robert Thomas from the Master's Seminary. Um, and if you're, you know, he's obviously not a Reconstructionist if he's at Master's Seminary. So uh, you may be thinking, well, that's not fair. Well, I, but hold on, I'm going to have quotes from Reconstructionists. So, okay. He says, theonomy, also known as dominion theology, you may have heard of that, or Christian Reconstructionism, different names for basically the same thing. And I know there are some distinctions, and it just depends on who you talk to as to which name they prefer, what they mean. But basically, they're synonyms, more or less. He says, It is a worldview that foresees a progressive domination of world government and society by Christianity until God's kingdom on earth becomes a reality. Okay, So, in Christian Reconstructionism, uh, the early teaching on that, like 50s, 60s, 70s, around in there, they they looked at it as what we need to do is a top-down perspective, okay? So what we need to do is we need to elect a, a president that has the right ideas, and we need Senate and the House people, a majority that have the right ideas, and get enough people on the, the Supreme Court that have the right ideas. And then that will work its way down into the rest of society and will bring in the kingdom of God through bringing the laws of the, Mos- the Mosaic law to be the law of the land. Well, 
some of you are old enough to know that that failed. Okay, and and so there was a uh, another movement that was kind of segueing with that the moral majority, and so the top down didn't work. The current belief among Reconstructionists is it needs to be bottom up, and so what they mean by that is we need to get involved in local government, we need to get involved in city council, we need to get involved in um, <clears throat> get on the school board and, and things like that, and start there. And then once we take over at the city level, and, and I'm not, I'm not making, they actually say this, okay? And you can go on, on their websites and read this. Once we take over at a city level, then that will expand to take in other cities and eventually the state and then multiple states and then eventually the, the federal government. And reconstructionism is concerned mainly with the United States. The enemy typically, they take that same thinking and apply it worldwide. So that's usually how you how they use those terms. But again, uh, there's differences in how they will use those. Now, uh, this Reconstructionism, it falls within post-millennialism. And post-millennialism, you might remember, post means after. So it means that Jesus comes after, he returns after the millennium, okay? So, now there are two different brands of post-millennialists. There's the historic post-millennialists, and that's my term, historic. Um, these believe, that they teach that what is going to happen is that we're going to get the gospel spread throughout the world. And if when enough people are saved through that gospel, then this thousand-year reign of, uh, or this thousand-year golden age will begin and we'll have a thousand years of basically Christianity uh, having the, the primary influence in the world. Okay? So it's gospel-centered. It's, it's getting the gospel out as the... the what is going to make that happen. And then Jesus will come at the end of that thousand years. Most of the Reformers held to that. Uh, most of the Puritans held to that. And some Presbyterians today hold to it. Think here are the Banner of Truth guys. Those that, that are in those circles, uh, they typically hold to that still. The other brand is theonomic postmillennialists. They use that term themselves, as you'll see in a minute. Um, they agree with that other perspective, but they add that the Mosaic law must become the basis of law in our governments at every level of government, every level of society. So, for example, one of their current theologians, Ken Gentry, writes this, the theonomic postmillennialist sees the gradual return to biblical norms of civil justice as a consequence of widespread gospel success through preaching, evangelism, missions, and Christian education. The judicial political outlook of Reconstructionism includes the application of those justice-defining directives contained in the Old Testament legislation. That's why we're talking about this. How does the Old Testament law and the law of Christ, how did those impact the Christian? That's the series we're in right now, okay? And we're looking at that. He there says that the Old Testament legislation is what is going to define justice, or it should, in society. Another theologian, Greg Bonson, said this, the nations will be discipled 
and will obey the Lord's word, Matthew 28. Let me stop there for a second. So one of the things that they teach, and I have heard a number of people use this, they say that Matthew 28, when it says that, you know, as you go, make disciples of all the nations. Well, I don't know about you, I look at that and I see that, okay, people in all the nations, we need to be discipling them. Well, they say, yeah, that that's true, but the emphasis there is to disciple the nation, the society, the government. Okay, well, there's problems with that, even in the, that context, I think. But that's what, and this is one of their theologians, what he said. The kingdom of Christ will come to dominate the kingdoms of this world. That's where we get the term dominion theology. And as God's kingdom comes... His will shall be more and more done on earth, both in the church and in the political realm. So you get the idea of what I was saying there, that the law is a big part for them. Of It has to be spread throughout the world. The law of Moses particularly becomes what defines justice, right and wrong, in all societies. And then the kingdom will start. Now, there's two basic attractions to theonomic postmillennialism or Reconstructionism, and, and I want to be fair to them because one of the things that, that attracts them is that they want to see our world embrace God-honoring laws. That's fair. Who doesn't want to see that? We all would agree with them on that. We'd say, yes, we want to see that too because our world is a mess and churches are a mess, and we would love to see that. So that's one of the reasons why it's attractive. Also, it claims to be more optimistic than other theologies, and they actually are the ones that say this, okay, because I, I don't think it's more optimistic, but they do, okay, and that's fair. Now, if they're right, it is more optimistic, okay, because they're saying that it's actually going to get better and better and better and better, and then the kingdom starts when it's really good, and then Jesus returns. Okay? So, <clears throat> you can see why. I mean, when you hear someone talking about the post-millennialism, either of the, the <clears throat> versions of it, you can see it's very attractive. I mean, those are things that we would love to see. And we would love to think that yeah, things are going to get better before, you know, in, instead of they're going to get worse before they get better. <clears throat> what I want to do first is I want to point out errors among a few in this movement who weave the law of Moses into the gospel. And I believe when they do that, they create another gospel, Galatians 1.6. Now, from what I can tell, these are just a fringe of this movement, and that's good that it's not more widespread but we have to be careful that people can be misled by their error. So I'm going to talk about two different groups, and I want you to have that in your mind, that these, there's going to be two groups we're addressing, okay? And I don't want you to think that when I talk about the first group that that's true of all Reconstruction. It's not, okay? There are two different groups. <clears throat> the first group I would label as definite legalists. And as I said, they're... They're a minority group in within that movement. Okay, so that first group. Some of these teachers insist that all of the laws, edicts, and statutes of God's law 
or essential to the gospel itself. And you see, that goes against what I was saying earlier, that if it's not by grace alone through faith alone, then, and you add works into that, that's legalism. Okay? And, and what they're saying by that is not... And you might be thinking, what, you know, John, when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I, I might use the Ten Commandments and say, you know, have you ever done this? Well, yeah, I have. Okay, you're a sinner. Then you need a Savior. Okay, that's not what they mean. They mean that the theology of the gospel itself has to include law, all of the, the laws of Moses. They say the gospel, the gospel must include sociology and winning the culture. And one of them even says that this gospel, if you have it include the laws, it benefits and sanctifies even those who remain unregenerate. I don't know how, after our study last time, an unregenerate person is sanctified. Okay? And, And one of the things I'm going to be addressing in this today is that um, for some, particularly the the popular teachers and, and all, it's not possible to say, okay, you read the scripture and that's what it sounds like to you. Let's talk about that. They don't want to talk about it typically. What they do, and I, I not only see this in some of the things I'm going to quote for you, but uh, it, it happens a lot. If you don't agree with them, they use derogatory terms for the gospel that we teach here. They call it pietism. And one of them calls it, quote, the simple little gospel message. Okay, putting it down. Is that the gospel that we preach here? They say it's not enough. It's not the full gospel. It's not everything. And and that's sad. For them, the gospel equals grace plus Law. <clears throat> Some of them teach another error, and this we're still in the legalists. Uh, for example, R.J. Rushdoony, and he's the father of this movement, the one that started it all. He taught that sanctification happens by keeping the law. We saw last time that the Bible does not teach that. And then he goes on to fault those who teach what we have said through our study in Ephesians 2 that Regeneration is what produces works. Okay, that's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. You are saved unto what? Good works. So regeneration, verses 4 through 7, that actually has to happen first, being given new life. And that new life that God gives you is going to then work its way out in your life in good, good works. He faults people who, us, who teach that. Good works, he says, are not products of regeneration. Now, that was that group. Okay, so I'm I'm basically done with that group, those that are truly in error. Okay. From what I can tell with the second group, most Reconstructionists don't teach either of those errors, and that's good. But there are some questions that need to be answered about Reconstructionism in general. Okay. And I want to walk us through this because I I want us to, to think and if you're interested in Reconstructionism, let's let's have dialogue. And I know some of you that have had an interest in it, you have done that. You've, you say, hey, let's talk and, and let's kind of hash some of this stuff out. But not everybody feels that way. 
Okay, and I, w I want us to be able to talk about it, answer some questions, try to hash these things out. First, is it our job to set up godly governments? Now, it's perfectly fine to, to desire having an impact on the government. And if you feel called to get involved in government at whatever level, you want to you know, try to be president of the United States or, or get into Congress or you, know, or you want to get involved at a local level, there's nothing wrong with that to have a godly influence or to find other ways to have a godly influence. There's nothing wrong with desiring that they be influenced for godliness and to pray for that. We should pray for that. But the New Testament doesn't say anything about how to set up a government, not one thing, tells us to submit to them, doesn't tell us how to set up a government. And so when we get to that place of, let's say that in this, this mindset, that we get to where now, okay, Christianity has taken over the world, what government are we going to have? Or we take over the city or the country, what kind of government is it going to be? It's going to be a democracy, a republic, a dictatorship, or what's it going to be? And the interesting thing is, is that Reconstructionists can't agree on that. And they have some, some pretty good knockdown drag outs over what that's supposed to look like. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. Okay? And, and you can't say, well, let's just look at the Old Testament because that was a theocracy and, and God has not said he's going to, at, until Jesus returns, do that. Second. How can we have the kingdom without the king? Scripture teaches that the kingdom drew near when Jesus the king drew near. Uh, I've just given you a few verses, but throughout the Gospels it talks about that. Jesus the king reigns in heaven right now. The Scriptures teach in a lot of different places, Old and New Testament, that Messiah the king will be present when his kingdom is present. You see, that was the whole point of him saying that when he told them the kingdom of God has drawn near. Why? Because Jesus had drawn near. The king had drawn near. That's why the kingdom was near. The king has left. So the kingdom went with him. The kingdom is in heaven right now. Now, there's a sense in which the kingdom is in our hearts, but that isn't changing society. It's not reigning over society. Okay? He will one day. We are citizens of that country. We are ambassadors. And ambassadors are foreigners who are in another land, not their own country, and they're representing the king of that other land. That's what we are. We're foreigners right now as far as this world is concerned. We're ambassadors to tell them about the king and his kingdom. Next. What about Jesus and the apostles teaching that there will be a great tribulation before the return of the king. Okay, so turn over to Matthew 24. And we'll see what Jesus had to say about that. Matthew 24. Now, I know that they have their own thoughts about this, um, and that's something we can talk about, okay? But to me, it seems straightforward. <clears throat> what Jesus says about the timing of the Great Tribulation and the kingdom. Okay, And the reason I say that is because, remember, in postmillennialism, the view is that things are going to get better and better and better and better and better, and then we'll have this thousand-year golden age, and then Jesus comes after that. But that's not what I find in Scripture. So Matthew 24, beginning verse 21, 
For then there will be a great tribulation. Jesus talking to the disciples about the things that are coming, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. So there is still something coming that is going to be a great tribulation, that is going to be worse than the world has ever seen, and there will be nothing after it that's worse. Okay, now some of them will say that, well, that's A.D. 70. That doesn't work. Because there have been things worse than that. And there are going to be things worse than that. Okay, so World War One, World War Two, uh, plenty of other things that are far worse. Okay, now, continuing on, verse 29, Jesus says, But immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. That's the second coming of Christ. Okay, so immediately after the great tribulation. So he's saying that before I return, it is going to get worse than it has ever been in all of history. Okay, and then I will return. And Kevin and I were talking this week, and he reminded me of some verses just a little bit after that. Look at verse 36. But of that day and hour when Jesus returns, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father alone knows this. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. So things got better and better and better and then the ark happened, right? No. Not at all. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the son coming of the Son of Man be. See, Jesus said it's going to be just like in the days of Noah. It's going to, be, it's going to get bad and even worse than that. Then Jesus says he will return. Okay? Paul also said that before Jesus returns, the apostasy comes first. Second Thessalonians 2, 1 through 5. So that apostasy, that means it is bad what's coming. Sure, it is optimistic to say that everything will get much better before Jesus returns. But I appreciate what Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert warn about this. In writing in a book, What is the Mission of the Church?, and they're talking more broadly about any of these ideas of, you know, we're going to make the world a better place. Uh, you know, they're not saying you don't try. They're saying that we're not going to succeed in making it really a better place. Okay, We can do it in some bits and pieces here and there around us, but not worldwide. They warn that thinking we can reform society can result in a wrong and ultimately discouraging optimism. Jesus and the apostles said it will get worse, not better. So ultimately, Reconstructionists will be discouraged. And that's one of the big concerns of your elders, is that, and this has happened, the the post-millennialism of the Reformers and Puritans, uh, when that happened, or when they, they held to that, and then, and they weren't Reconstructionists, but they had some early elements of some of these ideas, When World War I and World War II happened, 
It left them disillusioned. Some of them fled to amillennialism. Most of them did. Some of them just gave up on the faith. That's what we're concerned about. The first round of Reconstructionism, remember the top down, and, and that's that kind of sidebar um, idea, thinking of the moral majority. Okay, so we basically had control of the federal government, you know, we being from a conservative standpoint, right? And just blew it. And there were some good things that happened, but this didn't happen. And what happened? People were disillusioned. Christians were disillusioned and walked away from the faith. Or at least from Orthodox Christianity. That is the concern. Next. <clears throat> is the harsh rhetoric of popular Reconstructionist teachers okay? Now, this is not built into their theology. So you can be a Reconstructionist and not do this. There are Reconstructionists who don't do this. But the popular teachers tend to pretty much, at least most of them, do this. Okay? Is their harsh rhetoric okay? Why does anyone, why do their followers tolerate that? Such ungodly behavior. Well, it's because I think they, they see the horrible condition of our world. They see the horrible condition of churches. And it seems to them what they are looking for is, as one person noted, they're looking for clarity and strength. Okay? Because if you listen to those teachers, they'll tell you that they are clear and they are strong by their own admission. They, they, and it is arrogance. Arrogance masquerades as being clear and confident. But it's arrogance nonetheless. Now, that's not. You can be a Reconstructionist and not be that. But too many of them are. And I don't... If you have an interest in Reconstructionism and you, you say, you know, I really, I really think there's some merit to that, then why don't you speak up to those people that you follow and say, why are you doing that? Why are you talking like that about your brothers and sisters in Christ? See, that attitude doesn't come from Jesus. It comes from the father of Reconstructionism that I mentioned before, R.J. Rushdoony. John Frame, a, a Reformed theologian, reviewed Rushdoony's work, The Institutes of Biblical Law, and yes, he, he entitled it that uh, in parallel to Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion. Um, it's interesting that he did that, and, and what I'm going to tell you here in a minute. <clears throat> but Frame, John Frame pointed out the lack of Christ-like character all throughout that work. And it's a long work. For example, Rushduni calls people antinomian just for raising a question. One theologian said, now, how should we take this particular law from the Old Testament? How should we understand that? Oh, you're an antinomian. You know, that, that's, what he, I mean, that's what he did. And then he called... So, in Calvin's Institutes, one of the things he did is he was showing in there, he has this discussion about how love is a requirement for obeying the law. Okay, we've talked about that in this series, right? So, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, right? Okay, so Calvin develops that <clears throat> from a biblical perspective. And Rushduni said that in Calvin's discussion is a vein of antinomianism. Calvin? John Calvin, Right? 
a vein of antinomianism. And then it, it's worse. He says that Calvin was coming close to liberalism. Like, okay, you haven't read the Institutes, have you? I, that I don't see how they can say these things. And Rush Dooney has had scathing remarks for pastors who don't teach what he teaches on the law. So if you don't teach this, and and I, I didn't want to quote him because some of that was kind of like, I didn't really want to put that on the screen or say it in front of everybody. But scathing remarks, and I've heard similar scathing remarks from a lot of pastors out there who are doing the same thing. If you don't agree with them, which that would be us, at least your leaders, and, and they the things that they say about us. So, connected to that, next question, is it okay to evade parts of God's law? We looked at previously at Mark 7. Jesus showed there how the religious leaders obeyed parts of the law, but they ignored other parts. And then... In Matthew 23, he, he's, he says something similar. He said to those leaders, Woe to you who have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness, but these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. So is it okay to stand up for, for the things that you believe in, but at the same time neglect mercy, love, Love for your brother, the fruit of the Spirit, the Beatitudes, humility, those weightier provisions. And if we could go to the next slide, then I want to talk us through this just briefly. So, these weightier provisions of God's law. And remember, you've seen this slide if you've been here previously. At the very bottom is the character of God. That's where God's law comes from. Okay, from the character of God. And then God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's the next, that's the requirement. We have to be like Him, like His character. And then, next up, Jesus said that the two great commandments, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And He said, remember, the whole law hangs on that. So, this is at a more basic level than everything else. Okay? And then... This, uh, Matthew 23, 23, that I quoted. The weightier aspects. So it, it picks up the love from the previous level, if you will. Love of God and neighbor. But then he says justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You can think Micah 6, 8. You can think fruit of the Spirit. Things like kindness and walking humbly with God. Humility. Those kind of, those are the weightier aspects. They have a, and so it, in the text that I have above that, the weightier provisions of the law are more central to how we reflect God's character in our attitudes, in our conduct. And so they carry more force in how we are to be holy as God is holy. They must come first in our lives, then the other parts of God's timeless moral requirements must follow. Jesus said we must do both. Okay, So... <clears throat> We need to understand that, yes, the laws of God matter. The individual laws matter. But if you say, oh, I'm going to keep this law, but I'm going to talk hatefully about my brother, you've broken something more basic, closer to God's character, if you will, and in in as, as God's law is, is revealed to us and expressed to us arising from His character. Okay, So we have to keep in mind those weightier aspects. You've got to get that right first. And then do the rest. Okay. 
<clears throat> Rescuing downplays the role of love and gratitude <clears throat> as our motives in obedience. His perspective is that we, we obey simply because God said to obey. Okay? He advocates keeping love subordinate to the law. So he puts the law up here and then love comes under that. But that's not what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23. He said that love for God, love for neighbor, and the whole law hangs on that. So it's suspended from that. Okay, you see, so he's actually taking Jesus' words and flipping them upside down. Well, let's renew our minds by embracing the Bible's perspective on the Old Testament. The Old Testament is quite valuable to us. It provides helpful examples of how God's law was applied, and we can learn from that. Think 1 Corinthians 10. It provides rich teaching about God's character. Why do we preach from the Old Testament here in this church? Because it teaches rich things about God's character. It also shows how these timeless moral requirements, sometimes called the moral law, do not change. Why? Because they flow from God's character. We learn that in both Testaments, and we should study them both. Now, one last slide real quick. <clears throat> so, here is what we've... You've seen this, okay? But now what's different is that top part, God's law over time, and then I've got it broken down just... And we can get more detailed, but we're, we don't need to right now. The Old Covenant <clears throat> law, God's law for the people, everything below applies. It always applies, okay? But in time, the law of Moses was the moral law, ceremonial law, and case law. In the New Covenant, it's the law of Christ. And there are those timeless moral requirements. Remember I said in the past time that... That includes the moral law that was found in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament isn't binding on us. And so Jesus and the apostles, they say, okay, those are timeless. So they're part of the new covenant. And that's what I'm trying to show you under the new covenant and even in the eternal state. Now, while you won't have any desire to steal if you're in heaven, it's still a law. It still applies. It doesn't go away. Okay? So those are timeless. Okay, so I wanted to help. And maybe you can meditate on that a little bit more if you're having trouble sleeping tonight. Uh, as we come to the Lord's Supper, has the world gotten so bad that we've forgotten Jesus and the cross? Have we forgotten in 1 John 4 what he said, that in this is love, that God loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins? Have we forgotten that? Have we forgotten the next verse? If God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. Have we forgotten that? Let's try to have a biblical perspective on the law, God's law. And that perspective, that law, remember, hangs on love for God and love for neighbor. We cannot forget that.